0: Now this is recording.
1: RTI International Center for Forensic Dying. presents Just Science. Welcome to Just Science, a podcast for forensic science professionals and anyone who is interested in learning more about how real crime laboratories work. DNA evidence has had a significant impact on the criminal justice system. Since the National Commission on the Future of DNA Evidence in the 1990s, DNA has evolved into one of the most respected disciplines in forensic science. The DNA Season of Just Science focuses on DNA evidence and its use in forensic investigation. In Episode 1 of the DNA Season, Just Science interviews Chris Asplin, Executive Director of National Criminal Justice Association, about the evolution of DNA evidence. Listen along as our guest discusses the value of post-conviction testing and the impact of DNA evidence on forensic investigations in this episode of Just Science. This season is funded by the National Institute of Justice's Forensic Technology Center of Excellence. Here is your host, Dr. John Morgan.
2: Welcome to Just Science, the podcast for forensic science professionals. I'm John Morgan, your host. I'm the Senior Director for the Center for Forensic Science at RTI International. My guest today is Chris Asplin. Chris is the Executive Director of the National Criminal Justice Association. And one thing I want everyone to know out there about Chris is that he has been involved in forensic science improvement for a very large number of years. I don't know whether it's how you got your start, Chris, but it certainly was The first claim to fame that I knew about you, and that is that you were the uh, executive director of the National Commission on the Future of DNA Evidence, what I call the Reno Commission for the Department of Justice back in the 1990s. And you've also worked for a number of governments and law enforcement agencies in the implementation of DNA technology, uh, including uh, testifying before not only... US Congress, but uh, in front of the South African and Philippine Parliament and, and involved in a number of interesting issues around the world. Now, executive director of the National Criminal Justice Association. Chris, welcome to Just Science.
0: Thank you, John. Very nice to be here.
2: There are a few people I'd say uh, uh, we've actually had a conversation with Bruce Badoli before, who has a lot of the historical knowledge of how DNA came into practice in uh, criminal justice, but you certainly have a very different perspective than. Folks like Bruce who were more on the scientific side and quality assurance side and things of that nature. But uh, you you certainly have have been around uh, for a long time influencing the uh, implementation of this very, very important technology into practice. How did you get started into forensic science in general and working on, on policy related to forensic science?
0: Well, I tell you, I got started in DNA because I was a district attorney up in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and my specialty at the time was child abuse and sex crimes. And this was in the early 90s when this new technology called DNA began to kind of emerge and and we began to understand some of the potential that DNA had in a forensic context and because of the kinds of cases that I had, because I had you know, children who were raped, et cetera, it clearly became a, a, a tool that would help me from having to have children testify. And so I basically was the guy in the office who could spell DNA first, so I became the expert. <laughs> and as I began to understand what the potential was, I, I began to use it more, look for it more, ultimately— I moved down to Washington and became the director of the National District Attorney Association's DNA unit, where I trained a lot of prosecutors how to use DNA in their own cases. I missed the courtroom tremendously. I joined the U.S. Attorney's Office in Washington. And as you mentioned, at that time, Attorney General Reno created uh, the National Commission on the Future of DNA. Given my background, she asked me to be the executive director of, of that commission. But I think that's one thing that's really important to understand about that commission was the intent of the commission from Miss Reno's perspective was to maximize the potential of DNA technology. But it was really the seeds of the commission came from a report that DOJ did called Convicted by Juries Exonerated by Science, which actually spoke about... The potential of DNA to exonerate the wrongly convicted. So while the commission addressed all different aspects of DNA from databasing to crime solving to law enforcement education to science and technology, where were we going to legal issues? It was really the post conviction dynamic that told us that we weren't using DNA well enough because if we were convicting the wrong people in the first place, we weren't using DNA to convict the right people quickly, and and that's really how the commission got started.
2: Well, let's explore that for a bit, because if you were getting into it in the early 90s, uh, a, lot, a lot of attention has been paid, of course, to the uh, O.J. Simpson case, which over the last year, uh, some award-winning documentaries and dramas about that, and of course he just got released from prison recently for in Nevada. But uh, that had, a, had to have had an enormous impact on you as a prosecutor in understanding DNA, did you have reservations at the time? Did you have challenges in being able to try to apply DNA effectively in the
0: child abuse cases that you were prosecuting back in Bucks County? Not as a result of that case. There were so many, there were so many aspects of that case that were problematic that didn't have to do with DNA. And quite frankly, the the issue with that in in that particular case was, from a DNA perspective, was that they didn't keep it simple enough and they allowed too many doors to be opened. And that was not the fault of the original prosecutors who were Woody Clark and and Rock Harmon, who wanted to keep it simple, but rather a, a policy decision was made higher up to, quote unquote, teach America about the power of DNA. Well, That really wasn't what they were supposed to be doing. They were supposed to be convicting this guy. And that's one of the reasons that, that went amok. And as with most individual cases in individual jurisdictions all over the country, most juries look at the facts in front of them, the law that it's given to them, the way that it's supposed to work. And so while that case was disappointing to all of us in DNA and all of us who were prosecutors, Given the massive amount of physical evidence against him, we just kind of carried on realizing that that we understood the technology well enough to know that we had a really good thing going. One of the
2: things that I think came out of both that case and the Reno Commission was the recognition that the issue of exoneration is really the same as the issue of being able to use it effectively. And this is true for any technology that certainly want to use in scientific science that if you, if you understand where your failures are, that all of a sudden tells you an enormous amount about where your systematic problems are as well. And uh, the exonerations, I, I think we are still learning lessons that go well beyond forensic science uh, from the exonerations and the implications for not only forensic science, but like investigation and, and how detective work is done and how policing is done. Tell us a little bit about how the, the Reno Commission looked on that. I mean, did you all really just focus in on trying to improve the practice of DNA itself? Or were you cognizant of some of these broader issues in forensic science and
0: how those would play out over time? So we were laser-focused on DNA, and we, we had a number of different working groups that paid sole attention to DNA. Now, we recognized fully that there were going to be impacts on other technologies and other forensic sciences but that was going to be for another time Chief Justice Abrahamson who was our the chair made sure that we kept to our mission of just DNA now did our work inform the idea of the unreliability of eyewitness testimony absolutely did our work inform the unreliability of microscopic hair analysis absolutely and we knew that, but that was a byproduct, and it wasn't something that we were going to go ahead into and study. That was for, as you know, there have been subsequent federal commissions that have looked at, that, at those issues and, and looked at the, some fundamental problems in forensic science. But, but the one thing that I would kind of add to your kind of description of, of particularly the post-conviction dynamic is, while, while there may have been procedural issues or practical issues, The biggest issues we found in the post conviction dynamic were the legal issues. The biggest hurdles we had to exonerate people were the fact that the statute of limitations had run on the opportunity to test evidence, where if we could test it, we might exonerate someone. Um, You couldn't get back into court to, to ask a judge to test evidence that was five or 10 years old because the statute had run. When the commission started, um, there were only two states that really allowed you to look at things because of after discovered evidence. One of the most important things we did was we created model legislation specifically for that. And now every state in the country has some kind of legislation that allows for going back and looking at DNA or other forensic evidence that, that may be exonerative, um, whereas before it was just an impossibility.
2: I remember, not in the 90s, but
0: in the, I guess it was probably in the 2002,
2: 2003 timeframe, talking to, uh, not a prosecutor, I don't think a prosecutor, most prosecutors wouldn't have had this attitude, but a legal academic who was a skeptic of those reforms. And his view was that it was a threat to the finality of the verdict. That is that if you begin to call into question and reopen convictions, that uh, it would, you know, be disruptive to the very fabric of the criminal justice system, because every every prisoner in the in the country would all of a sudden say, well, you know, it's never done. The court the court the proceedings are never done, and so we're gonna just, well, I'll I'll find DNA or some other reason to reopen my case. Uh, did you uh, encounter a lot of that kind of uh, opposition at the time uh, during the commission's work and pushing trying to improve the statute of limitations uh, issues? I bet you did. <laughs> Oh, you have to (laughs) do that. It's hard
0: to believe now. It was a fair consideration in this regard. You know, if you're a prosecutor, you know, sitting on your desk, you had a pile of cases to prosecute. But the pile of cases that was twice as high were your PCRA's, PCHA's, you know, where you know, people are just appealing for anything and for anything and anything, and anybody's looking for a day out of court. And that that's not uncommon practice, okay? And every prosecutor goes through that. However, what was fundamentally different about DNA technology was that DNA technology in the right set of circumstances, in the right level of probative value, a DNA result could prove actual innocence. And that's what you were interested in. You, you, know, you, you weren't interested in whether or not it you know might be, might not be, might be a little bit better case. That wasn't the issue. What DNA brought to the table that was different than what prosecutors were used to was the ability to determine actual innocence. And that's what we were paying attention to. And the Innocence Project and Barry Sheck and and those guys, they did some wonderful, wonderful work in that regard. But let me tell you, the most important work that was done in that regard was actually done by folks like um, Woody Clark, God rest his soul, who was a prosecutor in San Diego, California, and Woody Clark was one of the first prosecutors, and he was one of the best DNA prosecutors in the country. He said, you know what? Proof is our responsibility, and it doesn't end a conviction. It is not the defense's obligation. It is ours, and if I have a case where DNA, and I've convicted a guy, but DNA may mean that we got it wrong, and I can prove it innocence actual innocence not not maybe maybe not but actual innocence i have an obligation to do that and so woody went into his prisons he went he put together a whole program where he reviewed all of his convictions and he offered dna tests to those cases in which they determined that if they did a dna test and it was exonerative then they'd let that person go and it wasn't until prosecutors began to embrace that function and that role that you then began to really see post-conviction testing take off. Mm-hmm.
2: If there's one thing I, I do regret is that I don't I don't think we've done enough to analyze the cases of actual innocence and and everything that's that's gone on since then. And if you're going to hear me say what I think, which is that in some ways forensic science has gotten a bad rap out of this. There are some cases where goodness knows that things like hair microscopy uh, and bite mark have been completely uh, misused and, and may not may not have much life in the criminal justice system in the future if we know what we're doing. But on the other hand, in each of these cases, we do have policing gone wrong. We have investigation gone wrong. I don't feel like we have enough understanding, um, and we've learned enough uh,
0: in that area. Well, fortunately, <laughs> I can tell you that the National Institute of Justice has made an award On what they call SEI, the Sentinel Events Initiative, and Sentinel Events Initiative looks exactly at those kinds of issues. So the idea, so kind of what you're talking about is airplane crashes, FAA does this incredibly substantive review of what happened here all the way back, right? And it's kind of a non-blaming review. But they really, really try to figure out what went wrong. And you're right. We don't do that in wrongful convictions. And Barry Sheck has argued this for years, that that this is just as important Well, this grant that was issued by NIJ is going to be looking at things like that. They're going to try to take that level and that scope of review when there are problems in the criminal justice system, and not just wrongful convictions, but they're included. Wrongful convictions, wrongful releases, police shootings, et cetera. But they're going to take that broader, more global perspective to try to determine what really went on here. Now, that's obviously, in a, in a criminal justice context, infinitely more complex because oftentimes you're talking 12 jurors, and who the heck knows what they were right. thinking or why they were thinking or if they were thinking. So it's a complex matter, but I can tell you that there are, there are efforts to go deeper into understanding of why things do go wrong in wrongful convictions.
2: Yeah, and I, I appreciate that a great deal in the Sentinel Events Initiative. It just makes sense to me. Why weren't we doing that <laughs> all yeah. this time? Right. How, how do you feel looking back? I mean, I look back on the on the uh, commission, the Janet-Reno Commission, on the future of DNA evidence, and I see some very specific things that came out of there that had an enormous impact on Al Swigdom and others put in what is really a model for how how forensic science policy can be done uh, I mean what do you what do you think were the, the top top outcomes from that commission that you see really has had a long-term
0: impact Well I think the things that we did well were we educated law enforcement really really well we blanketed law enforcement with the basics of how to identify, preserve, and collect DNA. And and that's where it all starts, because if you don't collect it correctly, or if you miss it in the first place, you don't get it back. You don't get to fix it. And so that was one of the things that we did that I think was really, really important. The guide that we put out on handling post-conviction testing for attorneys, prosecutors, judges, et cetera, I think that was, was really, really important also. I think we did a good job of anticipating the science and helping guide where some of the research was going to go. And I also think we raised the visibility of it in a very good, very positive way that, again, maximized its potential by showing both its value in the investigative stage, but also in its um, exonerative stage. But I will tell you that probably the great failure of my career, and it's heartbreaking, is at the time, you know we identified that there was this big backlog of rape kits that had been untested. At the time, we estimated it at a couple hundred thousand, and we started a program to begin to outsource those uh, rape kits, and we were the first ones to do that. We were the first ones to really apply federal dollars to outsourcing to private laboratories. For us to be 20 years later and still have a backlog of of that many rape kits is heartbreaking because they represent people who have been raped. They represent people whose rape could have been prevented. And we just didn't get it done because we just didn't figure out the system. We didn't put enough money to it. But the fact that there are still programs, the fact that Mariska Hargitay has to have, you know, the Joyful Heart Foundation, private uh, nonprofit, to get these tested, is scandalous. It's absolutely scandalous that there are rape kits that are sitting on shelves that aren't tested that could be taking people off the street. And that I feel terrible about that we didn't fix that back then simply because we never were able to create that pipeline that got rape kits from the emergency room to the lab quickly enough so that we could catch someone quickly enough um, to do it. And this is a government job. Government should be fixing this situation. Government should be testing these rape kits and solving these cases and getting these guys off the street. And it's the fact that we weren't able to do it then and the fact that we, we're still not there is, um, is one of the bigger failures of my career. Well, I think
2: that some of the points that you've, you've made and a lot of different uh, contexts really matter here because you may not be aware but one of the other things that RTI is involved in is the sexual assault kit initiative. And one of the lessons that we've learned out of that is how important it is for uh, law enforcement, uh, forensic science, prosecutors, and the folks who are involved in the same SARS community and victim advocate to really be uh, communicating well and understanding the bigger picture uh, with respect to identifying these kits and uh, getting, them, getting them processed and getting them uh, prosecuted in an efficient way. Getting conversations across what had been a lot, a lot of boundaries in the criminal justice system, and those boundaries are as much a problem as the amount of money that we've been able to put into crime laboratories.
0: Well, uh, you know, I'll repeat what I've said a couple of times. It's, it's usually not the technology, right? It, it's the other stuff. It's the human component, it's the communication, it's the policy, it's the systems that are put in place. It's not the technology. It's how we're, we're working the technology out to get the job done, and we're just not doing it well enough.
2: And I'd like to explore that with you a little bit with respect to some of the other experience. I know that you spend a fair amount of time in the United Kingdom as well. And I don't know, maybe it's the grass is always greener on the other side of the pond, but it seems like the United Kingdom has always been more efficient in this regard, their processing of DNA evidence—you know—they talk about it in terms of days, not months—and have for a very long time. Can you give some insight into your experience over in the UK and, and what the differences are
0: between their system and ours that we maybe we could learn from? Yeah. yeah, they they did it right from the beginning, and we did it wrong from the beginning in this regard. So in the UK, they always looked at DNA as a crime-solving tool, as an investigative tool when we first started looking at dna in the united states we looked at it as a better piece of evidence so in the united states crime would occur we'd investigate it through the traditional investigative process and then we would get a suspect and then we'd do the dna test so we'd go aha now we can go to court because we've got this great piece of evidence right well that's right. six months a year down the line and again That's not changing the way police do business. That's just giving a prosecutor a better piece of evidence. What the United Kingdom understood from the very beginning was that you drive the investigation with the DNA first. So their system from JUMP was set up to do the DNA testing first so that that would inform, that would expedite, that would make the investigation more efficient um, in ultimately solving the case. And so it was a police tool in the United Kingdom. It was a prosecutor's tool in, in the United States. And that's why from the beginning, their system has always been set up to move more quickly than ours.
2: So, do you think that there are institutional differences as well? Uh, You know, one of the things that's different about the United Kingdom is that they had a much more rigorous tradition of professional certification. Uh, They had a much more centralized forensic science service. I don't know whether that, whether I would still say that's the case or not. Do you think any of those institutional issues really had much uh, impact on the difference between the two countries?
0: Well, they're smaller. They could move more quickly. Um, I, I think they were more flexible than the FBI was. And the FBI has always driven the policy. The FDI has always decided what can and cannot go in into the database. And I'm not I'm not being critical of them at all. One of the reasons that DNA is as reliable as it is is because the FDI has been slow and steady and sure in what it has done. But that has meant that we haven't moved as quickly as we could have otherwise. And, and remember that the way we did it in the United States was, you know, the policy in the U.S. to get into, into the database was state-specific. So every state decided what went in. And most states started off going, well, this is serious stuff, so let's put in murderers and rapists first, right? When everybody passed their first DNA laws, murders and rapists, well, those are – I mean you want to put them in, but that's that's not the best way to do it because if a murderer or a rapist is in jail, he's going to be there for a very long time. So you're not going to reap the benefits of DNA until a rapist gets out 15 years later and recommits. A murderer may never get out. So we didn't include the right people in, whereas in the United Kingdom, they put in your car thieves, your burglars, your recidivistic crimes – So a burglar goes in, spends a month in jail, comes back out, commits the crime again, and then you catch him with DNA. There you're maximizing the potential of your technology. There you're changing the way police do business. But if you take DNA from a rapist and he's in jail for 20 years, that DNA sits in a database completely useless for the next 20 years.
2: Yeah, so I think that to some extent we still are in the better piece of evidence stage of DNA. Now, the listeners should remember, uh, if you haven't seen it already, uh, Chris and I did a separate pop-up podcast on rapid DNA in connection with the rapid DNA workshop, but I'd like to explore that a little bit in the sense that it's possible that both through things like the Sexual Assault kit Initiative and the expansion of rapid DNA, that kind of the attitude toward DNA and forensic science more broadly is, is shifting within law enforcement. I, I'll give one other example and that is NIBIN. I mean, the ability to do uh, rapid and accurate matches in NIBIN because of the improvements in microscopy is very, very different what it used to be even a few years ago. Do you think that there's a shift within
0: law enforcement with respect to looking at DNA and other forensic techniques as crime-solving investigative tools? Yes. What's beginning to happen because of RAPID and because of these local databases where Police are not worried about connecting to CODIS. They just have their own database. Police are beginning to say, you know what, this is our tool. This isn't the laboratory's tool. We're not going to let the lab or the FBI tell us what we can do with our evidence. This is our evidence. And so we're going to do it. And so there are places, for example, in Ben Salem, Pennsylvania, Palm Bay, uh, Florida, and such, where they've created their own DNA databases. And what they're doing is they're taking DNA for everything. They're swabbing cars. They're doing burglaries. The more volume crime you do, the bigger your database gets. You know, the effectiveness of any database is based on two things, the quality of your data and the volume of your data. And so what a lot of police departments are doing, particularly with the rise of RAPID, is they are beginning to to recognize that DNA is their tool. It's not the property of the laboratory. And once they take ownership of it, they begin to use it a lot more.
2: So it's interesting. I'm a bit of a student of policing more broadly because uh, you know policing has been through a fair number of iterations over the years. From uh, uh, you know the professional era of, of folks who really would defend the idea of, of it just being a better piece of evidence that you know trying to do anything other than solve the case at hand is in some respects opening you up to corruption. Even in the era of the early 20th century, that's what. Really was a problem within policing. I don't know whether the community policing era or whatever we want to call what we're in now should have brought forward this kind of uh, approach sooner. I mean, do you see police thinking differently in general about how they how they approach crime and and their jobs in a way that forensic science
0: can reinforce. Well, I do. I think, I think in terms of being more efficient and more effective, and they don't want to arrest the wrong person, right? And if DNA uh, gets them to the right person more quickly, they they are more efficient, they save money, they save time, but they're also getting the right person. And if you get the right person, that means that that person isn't still on the street. Now, I, you know, I, I will add kind of one, or raise one issue that, that is always something we need to think about in the context of DNA and particularly taking DNA at arrest. Now, taking DNA at arrest, the constitutionality of that was resolved a couple of years ago in a case called Marilyn v. King where they said it was not an unreasonable search and seizure um, to take DNA from someone who's simply arrested. You don't have to wait to convict them anymore. But you always have to be cognizant of the idea of pretextual arrests, right? We never want to see a situation where Law enforcement is arresting someone, uh, you know, maybe not based on as much probable cause as they should have, but they know he's good for something. And what they really want to do is get his DNA into the system. Right. Right. And we've seen that before. I mean, that that has occurred in other dynamics and other police departments have been sued for things like that. Well, this, this is a situation where that dynamic needs to be paid attention to. And folks should pay attention to the potential of that. You don't want to see it being used for those kinds of purposes. So there's a different culture within crime
2: laboratories and police departments, to be sure. There aren't a whole lot of folks in crime laboratories who are thinking along the lines that you're talking about. In fact, you know, some of the criticism of crime laboratory practice is that they have too much irrelevant information and that, that, can, that can bias them. How can we balance this idea about trying to use these kinds of techniques earlier in the investigative process with the idea of also trying to make sure that we maintain some objectivity in how they're applied? It's a, that's a hard problem. It's not, it's not easy to just be aware of it, you know?
0: Well, remember, it kind of goes back to, again, in the DNA context, the value of retesting, right? And so anytime that there's a question of whether or not a DNA test is correct, Uh, You get to retest it, and any prosecutor should be more than willing to go, here, here's a sample, take it to your lab, and retest it. And so that's one of the ways that that dynamic gets dealt with in this context. But police are always going to be police, and we're always going to have to continue to look for issues, and we're always going to have to retrain, and we're always going to have to address things like cognitive bias, and we're always going to have to learn better ways to do things. That's just the nature of a criminal justice system that is imperfect, that is run by human beings who, by and large, the vast majority are trying to do the right thing.
2: So just a, I'm going to switch gears just a little bit and just talk about one other aspect of some of your work, and that is some of the uh, uh, international work you've done in places in places like South Africa. I know South Africa actually did an awful lot of work in terms of... Uh, streamlining collection kits and uh, automating the analytical work fairly early on, in some respects earlier than the United States. What brought you into South Africa, and what was your
0: role and the work there? I was living in London, and I I was doing a lot of uh, uh, DNA-based advocacy for a law firm, and you were exactly right, that they had a tremendous automated DNA system that was better than what we had in the United States. And in fact, When I went there and I saw that, I immediately called back to the Department of Justice. I was gone by then, but I called back to DOJ to some colleagues I still had there. And I said, you need to fly these guys out here and have them tell you what they're doing. And they did. That's exactly what they did. And I I, I have to tell you this story. I was doing the lab tour, and the guy in charge of the lab was kind of asking us who we were, where we're from. And I said my name, and and he he said, are you Chris Asplund? And I said, yeah. I said, from the United States Commission. And I said, yeah, I used to. He said, come here, and he took me to his office, and and I swear to God, he showed me two of our publications from the commission that were pinned to the corkboard board over his desk.
1: And his point <laughs> was, we
0: don't get a lot of this stuff, and and most of what we get, you know, we get it over the internet, and so he had printed it out. So that was such a great feeling for me to know that our work had expanded. But what they didn't have in South Africa, while they had this great physical system they didn't have the legislation that they needed. So that's why they called me in, and that's why I testified before parliament, was to help them create legislation that was going to maximize the, the crime-solving potential of DNA, but at the same time protect human rights and civil liberties and all that other stuff um, that was – you know, is as equally important uh, if you're trying to fight crime.
2: Well, yeah, I'm a big believer in forensic science taking over the world. I think that, uh, you know, what is the (laughs) core aspect? Yeah, I mean, what is the core aspect of government except to protect us from each other in some respects when, you know, man's inhumanity to man is kind of a part of the human condition. But at least let's do it right. right. Let's uh, use the best knowledge and science we have and apply it in these situations. Forensic science can be
0: enormously beneficial in terms of improving governance around the world. It's the old adage that you know science doesn't testify one way or the other. It testifies to the truth, and that's what we need more of. Yeah, it's
2: interesting because you've now moved to the National Criminal Justice Association, which is an interesting umbrella group for an awful lot of the uh, state level committees or agencies that funnel federal funding into uh, not only forensic science but other parts of the criminal justice system. What do you see in terms of the evolution, of you know forensic science funding, as well as some of the other things that the criminal justice community is looking for from the forensic science community, you have a very unique view right now about that.
0: Yeah, so it's interesting. So the SAA's that we represent at NCJA, the state administering agencies, they handle all the Burn Jag um, funds that come through and some other funds. Not so much the the funding sources like Coverdale and such that that fund forensic science work, okay? So you okay. can actually deal less with that. Now, that being said, everybody's concerned about being more efficient and being more effective, particularly in the context of data sharing, information sharing, and coordinating those efforts. The neat thing about NCJA is, is that we cover the entire breadth of the criminal justice system. So our folks when we, you know, kind of have responsibility for those monies, those monies could go to law enforcement, they could go to prosecutors, they could go to the courts, they could go to public defenders, they could go to probation departments. The whole breadth of the criminal justice system is kind of what we're involved in now. For me, it was kind of a, a nice expansion for my interests, if you will.
2: Yeah. Well, I, I hope that we will be able to have a chance to talk in more detail about some of that, because I think there's so much that's going on in the criminal justice system right now. I, I worry because there's so much work to be done with respect to improving use of force policies for police and other things like that. Forensic science has got some great challenges with respect to trying to improve the scientific foundations of the disciplines and through things like professional certification and so on, although enormous progress has been made on accreditation. I mean, so where, where do you think uh, we should be concentrating our efforts in the forensic science community in terms of improvement right now?
0: So I think continuing down the road of ensuring the professionalism of the profession, if you will, and there's still much, much work to do. I think we can't give up on continuing to evaluate the various and sundry forensic disciplines that are out there. We continue to learn that there are flaws in the system, um, that there are flaws in the technologies. And I think it's really, really important to continue to, to do that. And it doesn't scare me that there are problems. It's not a problem that there are problems. It's only a problem if we don't see them. And forensic science is so valuable that we need to continue to hold a really, really bright spotlight on all of them to make sure that when we do use them, that we are, are really, again, maximizing the potential. And, and I'll, I'll say it this way in terms of where we are generally in the criminal justice system. From, from my perspective, we're at a unique time where criminal justice issues are bleeding into broader societal issues like nothing I've ever seen whether it be police shootings or opioid addiction or things like that, we're at a unique period in history where the criminal justice system is interfacing in a much broader societal context. And I think because of that, um, there's a particular need that we continue to be even better at getting justice right because It's not just about criminal justice systems anymore. It's about societal issues as much as anything.
2: Thank you very much, Chris. On that note, uh, which is uh, very well said, we will end the podcast. Thank you very much for being with us on Just Science, and we appreciate your time uh, with us today.
0: Thank you, John. I enjoyed it.
1: Next week, Just Science interviews Dr. Kenneth Kidd about his work in genetics.